Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and this week it's time to celebrate! Here at headquarters, I'm celebrating an enormous milestone with an exciting announcement, which I'll share at the end of this episode. Most people in France, however, are celebrating the beginning of Les Vacances. That is, the month of August, which most French people take off from work in its entirety. If you've ever visited France in August, and since August is peak tourist season, the chances are very good that you have, you know that everybody is officially on vacation. Stores are closed, restaurants are boarded up everywhere, and with this week's intense heat waves sweeping the nation, it's impossible to get a hot cooked meal. And why would you want to? So this week, let's enjoy taking it easy, getting out of the hot, stuffy kitchen and away from the intimidating dishes of French haute cuisine to enjoy a more simple, laid-back kind of French tradition. The picnic. If you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you, for Paris is a movable feast. When Ernest Hemingway first penned these words, he probably had something a bit more metaphorical in mind, but he nailed one of the quintessential French traditions, a meal that moves. The term le pique made its official debut in a French dictionary in 1629. We aren't 100% sure what the term means, but piquer means to pick, that is, to pick at one's food. Whatever the word's origins may have been, by 1629 the French understood that the word picnic had a specific meaning, but not, it turns out, the meaning that we give the word picnic today. In fact, what the French would call a picnic in the 17th century, we would call a potluck. The most important quality of a 17th century picnic was that everybody brings their own share of food to the meal. You didn't necessarily have to be outdoors to enjoy a picnic. You just had to bring enough to share with the class. Now, French kings and noblemen had definitely been eating outside since the 14th century when they'd enjoy a good feast in the middle of a hunting trip. They just didn't consider the outdoor dining to be the same thing as a picnic. During those early hunting feasts, everybody would have been munching on hams and meat pies, the kind of things you can bring along in the saddlebags, rather than any kind of elaborate feast. During a picnic, there wasn't necessarily a set menu. A picnic might be indoors, it might even be at a restaurant. Remember, back then, a picnic was a meal that everyone contributed to in one way or another. For those of you who are more used to the modern notion of a picnic, you might be envisioning a bunch of French dukes and duchesses gathering together with deviled eggs and potato salad. But of course, if there's one thing you can count on from the French nobility, it's that they're going to find a way to make things over the top. 
Over the next 100 years, the meaning of a picnic shifted, but not too much. It was still strictly reserved for aristocrats, and these meals were still often indoors. The picnic had less to do with where you were eating than who you were eating with. Picnics were activities run out of fashionable salons and cabarets. Nevertheless, even if they didn't call it a picnic yet, fancy French aristocrats were still happy to dine al fresco, and they really loved to be painted doing so. The great Baroque artist Jean-Antoine Watteau painted approximately one billion paintings of rich people dining outdoors during this time. But don't go thinking that just because everyone's outdoors that this is some simple rustic pastime. This is still, after all, 18th century France. French nobility would simply ask the servants to lug enormous heavy furniture outdoors and run the food from the kitchens to some lawn half a mile away, sprinting to make sure it arrives before the soup gets cold. Most importantly, you must dine only on a perfect white tablecloth, hard enough to keep clean in 2017, and definitely a signifier of one's great wealth and retinue of servants in 18th century France. But, as with most forms of royal excess, the luxurious nature of picnics fell away after the French Revolution. Instead, once the lands of newly beheaded noblemen were given over to the French people, casual, everyday picnicking became a popular way to spend one's afternoon. As Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote in his classic novel, Emile, the turf will be our chairs and table, the banks of the stream our sideboard, and our dessert is hanging on the trees. In the great Fête de la Fédération, in the middle of the French Revolution, Paris celebrated with an enormous picnic in the Bois de Boulogne, in which more than 20,000 picnickers ate, drank, and were merry. By the end of the 18th century, the great French food writer Briat Savarin wrote affectionately of the humble delights of the picnic. I have hunted in the center of France and in the very depths of the countryside. I have seen at the resting places carriage loads of women of radiant beauty and others mounted on a modest donkey such as composes the fortunes of the people of Montmorency. I have seen them first laugh at the inconveniences of the mode of transportation and then spread on the lawn a turkey with transparent jelly and a salad ready prepared. I have seen them dance around a fire lighted for the occasion and have participated in the pleasures of this gypsy sport. I am sure so much attraction with so little luxury is never met with elsewhere. Just because the public adopted the picnic, it didn't mean that the rich and famous resisted the allure of dining al fresco. In 1804, on the island of St. Helena, the exiled Napoleon Bonaparte visited an English-speaking neighbor, William Doveton. Together, the two men and their servants dined outdoors, feasting on meat pies, cold turkey, salads, oranges, coffee, champagne, and Napoleon's personal favorite, almonds. They whiled away the hours chatting in French and English and picking at the dishes before them, enjoying the tranquility of the waves and the joy of one another's company. 
Eight months later, the deposed dictator passed away. Napoleon Bonaparte's last social outing was a picnic. By the 1860s, French artists looking to rebel against the establishment began treating the picnic as a symbol for everything new and exciting in art. First, picnics were the opposite of everything that traditional French art stood for. Nobody ever painted Louis XIV at a picnic on the lawn in Versailles, and there aren't any picnics in the Bible or ancient mythology, unless, I guess, if you count Eve snacking on that apple in the Garden of Eden. Second, since picnics now took place outdoors, they were the perfect opportunity for those daring young artists who wanted to play around with light and shadow and wind and all the fleeting moments which make up an impression. Finally, everybody loves picnics, and if you're a starving artist painting charming family picnics, by golly, somebody may just go ahead and buy one of your canvases. Monet, Toulouse-Lautrec, Seurat, Tissot, and Renoir painted some of the most iconic paintings in art history, with working-class Frenchmen and women swinging from trees, staring out at the waterfront, lounging under trees, laughing, talking, and falling in love. Yet one depiction stands above the rest. Perhaps the most groundbreaking painting of the 19th century. Yet one depiction stands above the rest. Perhaps the most groundbreaking painting of the 19th century, Manet's Déjeuner sur l'herbe. While the painting is controversial for a whole host of reasons which I've covered in previous episodes, it's sometimes easy to forget, amidst all the casual nudity and turbans and scandal, that what you're looking at is, of course, a picnic. In fact, the English translation of that title is Luncheon on the Grass. As perhaps a testament to the popularity of the picnic by this point in time, Emile Zola rolled his eyes at the shocked critics who didn't know what to make of Manet's Déjeuner sur l'herbe. What could be simpler, he wrote, than two couples enjoying the outdoors? By the 20th century, French picnicking took on a new shape while truly committing to its one essential quality, the art of eating outdoors. Picnicking continues to show up in artworks by Matisse and Bonnard, musical compositions from Satie, and writing by Gertrude Stein. When the Tour de France cycling competition originally launched, there were no provisions for food or drink along the way, so riders would have to make it up as they went along. And in a bit of a throwback to the aristocratic picnics of yore, one early wealthy cyclist had his butler arrange a picnic on the side of the road. Cyclists soon made way for cars, which offered would-be picnickers in the city the opportunity to escape to the countryside for a little rustic fun. Often, families would take the top down, lay a board across the top of the car doors, and invite everyone to eat right where they sat. Flashing forward to 1988, one inspired Parisian invited his friends to an elegant dinner party in the Bois de Boulogne, and he told his guests to dress in all white so it would be easy for them to find one another. 
The idea sparked an international craze, and the Dinner en Blanc is now hosted around the world. It was during the 20th century that picnics became inextricably linked with the quintessential French holiday, the 14 juillet, or as us barbaric United States and Canadian residents call it, Bastille Day. Don't ever say Bastille Day to a French person. Throughout the country, French families spread out on the grass every 14 juillet with food and wine to watch the parades and to watch the fireworks. In 2000, to celebrate the first 14 juillet of the new millennium, France organized the biggest picnic in history. Starting all the way up at Dunkirk, traveling through Paris, and ending at the tiny southern town of Prade de Mouillot, 600 miles of red and white checked tablecloth accommodated up to 4 million picnickers. Even heavy rain couldn't dampen what the nation called its incroyable picnic. And of course, as tradition dictates, the picnickers were asked to bring their own food. As one historian of the picnic writes, Picnicking coincides with modern history, the shift from pastoral to urban living, the decline of villages and the rise of modern cities, and changes in work conditions that are the result of improved technology, industrialization, and modes of travel. There is an urge to leave the workaday and reverse patterns by leaving home and city for the country. So when the opportunity arises, a picnicker seizes the day, stocks a basket, gathers dining gear, a blanket, and perhaps an umbrella, and heads for somewhere where there is no work. In the 400 years since the picnic first made its official debut, the tradition of eating outdoors with friends transitioned from an aristocratic novelty to an everyday activity to an enshrined national tradition. So this month, turn off the stove, grab a bottle of wine and a good wedge of cheese, and head out for the park with friends. As Gertrude Stein declared in 1920, we will picnic, oh yes, we are very happy, very happy and content and content. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. Speaking of picnics, I'm going to be hosting one of my own here in San Francisco in a few weeks because I have some very special celebrating to do. This week, the podcast is set to cross an incredible milestone, one that I've been working towards but can't quite believe I've managed to pull off. The Land of Desire has now been downloaded a quarter of a million times. For comparison's sake, that's greater than the population of Bordeaux. If you need an excuse to celebrate, and who doesn't, I encourage everyone listening to have a picnic in the month of August, take some pictures, and post them on the Land of Desire's Facebook page bonus points if you tell us everything you ate, because I need menu ideas. But that's not the only celebration taking place. You asked for it. You donated to my Patreon page to help it happen. And now it's almost here. It's time for me to launch 
the Land of Desire newsletter. That's right, the Land of Desire is getting its very first spin-off. If you'd like to sign up for this monthly digest of fun links, interesting articles, recipes, book recommendations, and other French-related odds and ends, please sign up today by going to www.thelandofdesire.com slash newsletter and enter your email address. I'm really excited, and I think you'll enjoy what I have in store for the first issue. While you're signing up, you might notice I've given the show's official website a bit of a facelift. I figured it deserved a nice birthday present after a year. I look forward to seeing everybody's picnic photos, and I can't wait to send out the first issue of my newsletter later this month, so don't forget to sign up. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, au revoir!